Good morning, everybody. If you're new here, my name's Philip, and I'm one of the pastors, and I lead the team here. Uh, and uh, that's a good video, isn't it? Thank you to the Rousel family for putting that together. It really does set the tone and the context for what it is we're doing in this series. Uh, as we're just beginning to ask, what does it mean to be uh, men and women according to the timeless design of God and all the implications of that. And we've looked at the equality of men and women. We've looked at the distinctiveness between men and women. And this morning I want to talk about sex as an obvious overarching theme that taps into so much of what it means to be men and women in, uh, in God's family, according to God's, God's ways. Um, someone this morning said to me, are you talking about sex this morning? I said, yeah. She said, my parents are coming this morning. <laughs> I, was like, I know. No, no, nobody wants to talk about sex with their parents next to them. I get that. Um, but we're going to talk about sex because uh, it's a massive theme in our lives and in our culture and our society. And the Bible's got some good things to say about it. And it will give us a further significant chapter in the overarching story in order to help us keep digging into further chapters. So next week we're looking at, at marriage. John and Sophie Ford are going to preach on marriage together, which I'm super excited about. And we're going to look at the church family and we're going to look at singleness. And after Christmas, we look at like dating and pornography and homosexuality and transgender and so forth. So we're looking now kind of the big, it's the big picture stuff that allows us to then take some steps further down the story, if that makes sense. So I would love you to be catching up on these messages that I and others preach because it's part of a, an overarching narrative, right? And that's at least is the, is the, is the intention. And I get that lots of you are new this morning and looking in on church. And if you're part of us, we don't talk about sex every week. Um, but actually, I'm not sure I've talked about it enough, to be honest with you, over the last three, four years. I'm not sure that I've served you as well as I could have done in talking about it more and giving us a framework in order to, uh, to live um, flourishing, healthy lives. If you are here this morning and you would say, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a follower of Christ, I want to say something to you is that A, you're super welcome here. We love being a church where anyone can come and, and look in and ask and explore and object. And it's worth saying that you'll be coming at the issue of sex from a pretty different angle to that which I'm going to come, come from it with, and that's okay. But I would love you to prioritize that the big picture question, which basically is, did Jesus die and rise again? Because that's our ultimate conviction. Our conviction is that he did and that he affirmed the Bible as the word of God and therefore we try and stand upon the Bible as the word of God and let it shape all of the areas of our lives. But we don't come at something like sex just from a sort of desire to be Christians and talk about it and be moral. We're, we're, we're convinced by the wonder and the person and the resurrection of Christ, and I'd love you to prioritize that as your main uh, investigation. Like we're not here. If you're not a follower of Christ, I'm not asking you to obey the commands of Christ. It would be totally illogical. We want you to explore Christ for yourself. But if you are a follower of Christ, we do want to, as a leadership team, as pastors, to hold before you the timeless and beautiful design, because it's our conviction that it is. We want to hold that before you and say, this is, this is God's timeless and beautiful design for how he wants sex to be understood and to be used. Just before I dig into the word of God, the scriptures, it's worth just probably just throwing out there a couple of ways in which we're currently uh, being encouraged to think about sex. So if you're not a Christian, you might chime with this, you might not. If you are, I think you'll have felt these paradoxes, or at least one paradox about how we should be, according to today's mindset in the West, thinking about sex. And I guess you could summarize it as this. It's the everything-nothing paradox. It's the everything-nothing paradox. On the one hand, we're encouraged, aren't we, to, to think about sex and sexual expression as almost like everything. It's absolutely intrinsic to our identity, to our right to and need for self-fulfillment. Like the idea that somebody might not be having sex, might be having less sex than you, is, is almost laughable. I'm thinking of like Sheldon in the Big Bang, for example, that kind of character, if you know who he is in that show. is like He's, he's kind of a, a laughable, almost sort of... Um, 
unique human specimen, as it were, partly because he's a virgin or he's not having sex. It's that kind of 40-year-old virgin, that, that movie that was out a while ago. It's this kind of idea that that is just bizarre. It's sex is everything, and how could you ever live without it? And how could you ever not express it in the way that you feel and deem to be right for you? Sex is everything in many ways in our culture. And at the same time, sex is kind of nothing. It's because we think, well, if people, sex is kind of a, it's a consensual transaction. We can easily separate off our bodies from our minds, and we can give sex, have sex, as long as it's consensual with the current kind of way of thinking, and I, I think it's two people, then however you wish, and whenever you wish, and who, with whomever you wish, and it's just a, a quick exchange. You can, it's the hookup culture, with one or a couple of swipes on your phone, you can literally be having sex with somebody within the hour. So this is kind of strange paradox, I think, in our culture, where on the one hand we're saying it's everything, and it's absolutely core to who you are, and if you're not having it, in, some, in blunt terms, you're not really fully human. And at the same time we're saying it's kind of a, it's something that can be given away. It's a transaction, it's just a, a, minor, a minor thing. So the question is, which is it? <laughs> is it everything? Is it nothing? Um, and the Bible, I think, would give, us, would give us a third way. There's another paradox that would say, I think, in culture, that, especially in the West, which is that we are a progressive, uh, progressive society, modern society. We've, we've broken off the shackles of uh, kind of restrictive, authoritarian regimes, and we've broken free would be one of the kind of things that you would hear about. Anything that's authoritarian, that would, would, it would seek to impose any kind of boundaries, is, that's kind of dangerous, that's, that's, that imposes guilt and shame, and it restricts you being who you are. So we kind of like to see ourselves in the West as very progressive, which, by the way, is a very loaded term to use, because, of course, who wants to be regressive? So just kind of, if you are a Christian, just be aware of that. That term is very, very loaded. Okay? Progressive doesn't necessarily, we've mean, doesn't necessarily mean we've made progress in what it is to be human. And I think we know that. We know that as regards sex. It's, it's a big problem in, in our life. You don't need me to prove to you that sex is difficult and hard and painful and causes all kinds of fracture, so to speak. We've got the Me Too movement. You've got a proliferation of, of kids who are literally addicted to heart, not just any old porn, as it were, but hardcore porn on their phones and having their whole minds kind of warped as regards to who women are and how they should be treated and what sex is. You don't need me to give you a whole list of things that evidence the fact that our culture, as much as we love to say we're progressive, we're in a bit of a tangle when it comes to sex. That doesn't prove that the God of the Bible is true, but for those of us who are convinced that the God of the Bible is true, it, it kind of emphasizes the need for us to stand upon a timeless design, a beautiful design that is outside of any particular cultural pressure or mandate. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. And if you're new to the Bible... Paul is the, the author of this letter to a church in Corinth, and he's writing to Christians. Okay? He's not writing to non-Christians, telling them how to behave. He's writing to a bunch of people who are Christians in the city of Corinth, and he wants them to know, now that you've come to faith in Christ and you've been dazzled by his incredible life, death, and resurrection, you've given your life to him, this is how using your bodies looks like in obedience to him. That's his passion. And he knows the church in Corinth have got themselves in a fair old tangle as regards to how to use their bodies and how to treat sex as followers of Christ. So this is what he says, verse nine of chapter seven. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now that's, that's not a verse that, that Christians are supposed to kind of use to tweet out and say, ha ha, world, you naughty people who are doing all of these things. That's Paul writing to Christians, and Christians people would say, we know we were so far from the purposes and plans of God. We know in all kinds of ways that we were broken and in need of a savior, and we found one, and he's loved us and made us whole. That's what Paul's trying to say. Such were some of you, he says to the church in Corinth. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So here we think Paul is probably quoting kind of contemporary Corinthian sayings at the time. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It's worth saying that, of course, when I talk about sex, and indeed I alluded to before, the ways in which it goes wrong and is used wrong, that's just not an issue out there in the wider world beyond the church. So this is real stuff for all of us. So I do want to just kind of call it out and acknowledge us. All of us will have our own stories of sexual brokenness. I have. For all of us, this, this will touch on certain, it'll hit certain nerves. For some of us at the moment, sex is great. We're enjoying sexual intimacy within marriage and it's flourishing and thriving and it's one of the things that we thank God for the most. For others of us, we're married, but their sexual intimacy has long since gone cold, and I'm already touching on something that's hard and painful. Some of us might know what it is to be attracted to the other sex, the opposite sex, and be trying to work out how on earth, if I'm a Christian, do I follow Christ faithfully and obediently? Some of us will have brought into relationships all kinds of sexual baggage. Some of us will have treated sex like a commodity, something to be used for our goods. Some of us will have been used and traded for other people's goods. So I just want to kind of call that out and recognize that this is not just a quick and easy thing that we talk about. This is church, right? This is where we, we can talk about these things. We can be safe. We can care for each other. We can be honest and open. If we can't do that in the, in the body of Christ, the family of God, then where can we do that? And I love what Becca brought about this being a morning perhaps of, of restoration and of hope, of faith rising. So please hear me. Wherever you are and however that passage lands with you, I want you to know that the God who inspired every word of that 
passage and every word of the Bible is for you and loves you and wants to draw you into something so special this morning. That is for your good and for your flourishing. He's not given up on you. He doesn't hold things against you. He holds something for you if you'll step into it this morning. So I want to talk about the power of sex this morning. A couple of quick references and then the primary thing that I want to land in, the power of sex. We know it has power. We know it's not nothing. First of all, according to the Bible, sex has the power for procreation. It's worth just landing that up front and center. That was the kind of first hint of sex's purpose that we saw in Genesis 1, in week one of our series. The commands of both men and women, God blessed them, uh, Genesis 1:28, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Doesn't mean that we all, as married couples, are able to procreate, but God has designed our bodies and this gift in, to, be able to have the capacity to. And so there's a multiplication aspect, of course, to the gift of sex. Secondly, there is a pleasure power, of course, to the gift of sex, at which point some of you start to get a little bit nervous and think, is he going to talk about like, orgasms and things in church? Because this is new to me. But <laughs> I'm not really. But you can read the Song of Songs in the Bible, which for centuries people tried to say, ah, it's not about sex. No, 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 it's just a metaphor for God and his people. It has overtones that tell us of God's marital commitment to his people, as I'll mention later on. But first and foremost, theologians are agreed, it's a celebration of the intimacy and the joy of sex between a husband and wife. And it's no holds barred celebration. (laughs) Go and read it. Go and enjoy it. I mean, it's remarkably explicit in the best possible sense, the way in which uh, the author talks about sex within Song of Songs. God didn't have to give us a brain. He didn't have to give us the, a chemical called dopamine that an orgasm releases and causes us to experience genuine ecstasy and pleasure. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And so part of the power of sex is not only for procreation, but also for pleasure. That's probably a different, a different message. Thirdly, but genuinely, primarily, the superscripture would tell us that the power of sex lies in its capacity to affirm and demonstrate unity. That's the big idea this morning. The power of sex is to affirm and demonstrate unity. You see, other than the kind of command to multiply physically in Genesis 1, which we've said these last three weeks is ultimately born out in a spiritual mandate to multiply, yeah? Jesus elevates the spiritual family even over and above the physical family and ultimately what we're about as the people of God and the family of God is making disciples of the family of God. But over and above this multiplication mandate, the first way that God describes sex is in Genesis 2. We've read it the last two weeks. We'll read it again. Genesis 2 verse 24 to 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So the first way that really that God describes what sex is is a one flesh unity. The first thing he says about sex, the first thing he says is not and they came together and had spectacular sex and the ground beneath their feet moved. That's not the first way that he describes sex. He describes it as being a one flesh union. It both affirms and demonstrates the unity of Adam and Eve's marriage. It brings them together. In fact, it reunites them, doesn't it? 
If he, in Genesis 2, the woman is made from Adam. Actually, the sexual act within marriage in some ways reunifies them, but it certainly unifies them. That's what God, how God describes it. And in case you want to kind of write off Genesis as being, well, that's, that's for then but not for now, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect image and representation of God, is asked some punchy questions about divorce and sex and marriage, this is the passage that he quotes, Genesis 1 and 2 together in Matthew chapter 19. Haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 1. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And he goes on to say, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And some of us were at a wedding of a precious couple in this church, Alex and Joe, yesterday, which those words were spoke with appropriate joy and reverence and sobriety. And then Paul does the same thing in our passage. He also references the Genesis 2 timeless design for how he wants to talk about sex. You'd have heard it when I read it at the beginning of this message. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul says, as it is written, quoting Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. So Jesus and Paul affirm what God puts in place in Genesis, that sex, its primary power is in creating unity, a unity in marriage. Like God didn't need to design sex like this. I had all kinds of examples of how he's designed other, how he's designed animals to have sex to make the point, but it wasn't going to help you. It was just going to be weird. So, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> he, has, he didn't have to design it this way, but he has. He's designed the physical act of intercourse to demonstrate total unity, a physical entering into, a coming together, a, a melding of two bodies to literally physically create, as it were, one It's a physical act that represents a sacred reality. That certainly is what the Bible would want to say about sex. A physical act that represents the sacred reality of union in marriage. Two people saying, because I promised that it was only you and I until one of us dies and nobody else, because I promised total exclusive commitment to you, let's now demonstrate that physically. Which is not one of my lines to Carol on date night, I hasten to add, but that's... That's kind of the heart behind it. It's a physical act that represents a sacred reality. I I was thinking about a kind of a a way to compare this and make this point more, and it's not a perfect illustration by any means, as most illustrations aren't, otherwise they'd be the thing. But I was thinking about communion, and communion is a physical act that represents a sacred reality. Jesus knew that we're physical beings. We don't just separate off mind and spirit from body. We made holistically, and so he gave us the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, the drinking of wine, a, a physical act to represent a sacred reality, the sacred reality, the sacred reality of Christ's body being broken, his blood being shed for us, in order that through faith in him, we can, become, we can be made whole again. So the communion, in some ways, is this physical action that demonstrates, it reminds us, it it causes, when we come to break the bread and drink the wine, we're not just our trust as believers, we're not only just having something to eat and something to drink, are we? It represents a profound, sacred, spiritual reality, the very breaking of the body and shedding of the blood of Christ in order to draw us into union with God. And I think that's partly why God's given us the gift of sex. It's a physical action to represent a sacred reality, the union of husband and wife. I wonder if that's how you 
how you see it, how you treat it. And that's partly why, only in part, I'll come to both halves, but the first half, that's partly why Paul is, as you can see in this passage, he is, he's just grieved. He's a spiritual father. He loves these Corinthian Christians. And he's grieved that some of the men, presumably, are paying for sex with prostitutes. And interestingly, he doesn't just say, stop it, stop it, stop being immoral, stop it. He doesn't say that. He basically says, sex is a one flesh union. It, it represents a, a permanent, committed union. And, and you're taking that and doing something completely different with it. That's the way that he challenges them. He's like, you're taking a symbol that is designed to represent permanent, exclusive, committed commitment, and then you're taking that and doing kind of the complete opposite. It's a, you're taking it into a, a very temporary thing, a, a transactional thing, a, a thing that's ultimately selfish and for your gain and nobody else's. That's the heart behind his, his grief at what's going on. Sex between husband and wife is really precious to God. I was reading some of the laws this week afresh in Exodus and Leviticus. I don't know the last time you read Leviticus was. But God goes to great lengths to establish really firm, fierce boundaries around marriage and around sex within it. Not because he wants to restrict our fun, which is, I think, the common, not just uh, conception of our culture, but often a lot of Christians, I think, deep down, just kind of suspect that when it comes to sex, God's just a bit of a killjoy. It's not his heart behind putting in these really quite fierce, strong laws. He wants not to restrict our fun, but he wants to help us to be free. He, he knows, and I think we know, that true freedom is to live within healthy boundaries. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, I remember being in a, in a pub with some friends, and uh, one of my friend's friends, uh, she uh, saw there was a piano that was free in the, in the pub. You probably know where I'm going with this. And at some point, someone persuaded her just to start playing, playing something on it, one of those <laughs> pubs where you, where you could. And uh, she played, I can't remember what the, what the song was, but she played it, and we enjoyed it, and we were, we were getting into it. Then she played a second song, and some other people in the pub started to sort of kind of gather around a bit and started to um, joining in. By the th- fourth song, pretty much like the whole pub uh, was just gathered around, singing, having just a gr- the whole evening just kind of took off uh, because she was playing the piano so brilliantly. And she was able to play literally any, whatever song anybody asked for, whatever decade it was from, whatever genre it was from. She played this song and like bit by bit the whole evening just took off. It was such a good night. And at the end of the evening, well, the next day, I think, I asked my friend whose friend she was. I was like, she's, she's an amazing pianist. How did she get so good? And he looked at me and just said, kind of slightly, sort of obviously, well, he's like, well, practice. <laughs> and he said, when we were growing up, my friend, the pianist, I was like, we didn't really see her that much because she was always practicing. We remember going out sometimes and she wouldn't come because she was always practicing the piano. You see, the reason she got so good was that she practiced and practiced and practiced. And then any of you who are musicians, you know that you, that's, that's kind of part of the deal. If you want to be able to express the beauty and the creativity of music, you have to make a choice, don't you, to restrict your freedom, you could say. You choose to not do some things in order that you can do this thing, trusting that this thing is going to enable you to express beauty and creativity, right? I don't think when she was practicing and practicing and practicing as a young person, I'm sure it came with sacrifice. But I don't think she ever thought, gosh, I, ch- I wish I could throw off these restrictive authoritarian structures. She's like, I, I believe in where this is taking me, so I'm going to practice. The question is, do we believe that God's boundaries around what he says sex is and what it's for result in music of creativity and beauty 
that both sounds wonderful and is wonderful to play? That's the question, I think, for us as Christians. The other reason that I think Paul is so grieved by what is happening, um, and it's not simply, I think, that these guys are paying for sex with prostitutes. The bigger picture is it's just it's taking the gift of sex outside of marriage. But the other reason that he is so grieved is not just because sex is communicates union between husband and wife, but because it also communicates union between people and God. Sex communicates union ultimately, I would say, between people and God. If you read the story of the Old Testament over and over again, the language of sexual and marital union and disunion is used over and over again to describe God's relationship with his people. It describes how, how grieved God is by Israel's, if you like, adultery and unfaithfulness and, and pursuing other lovers, and also described how, how committed God is, how faithful he is, how loving he is. You ever read the book of Hosea? It is the most beautiful, brutal, tragic, redemptive story in many ways in the Bible. God asks this prophet called Hosea in the 8th century BC, sister, I want you to act out this spousal marital relationship between me and my people in your marriage. Those of you who've got a prophetic gifting, you know that part of being a prophet is sometimes comes with sacrifice and pain. And Hosea is asked by God to marry this woman called Goma, who he knows and God knows will in our language, cheat on him, be unfaithful on him, take her sexual desires all over the place and humiliate him and let him down and leave him. And yet Hosea, given what God has told him to represent, Hosea stays faithful to Gomer. He pursues her. He keeps on initiating love with her. He forgives her. He tells her, I love you. I'm for you. I want you to come home. And it's this kind of, like I say, brutal, beautiful picture of God's commitment, his spousal commitment in the language of sex and marriage towards his people. And the promise, if you like, that's contained in sex is that it speaks of a greater union, a greater marriage between God and his people. And that's the part that all men and women play in the story of the Bible. We're not the kind of perfectly presented, really dateable, super eligible spouse in the story of the Bible. We're not. We're the ones that are, are, are messy and keep on getting it wrong and are unfaithful and rebellious. And yet God pursues us. If you're far from God this morning, you need to know this is how he loves to describe himself through Hosea as a, a scorned husband who just wants to love you and reclaim you and cleanse you and forgive you and draw you back into a perfect love relationship in the context of commitment. And that's why the Bible talks about the church. This gathering here this morning, the family of God, as, it talks about it as, as a bride, the bride, the bride of Christ. He's the perfect bridegroom, as we've been saying these last few weeks. None of us men are. We all fall so far short. And that's why every man and woman needs to find their ultimate urging and, and desire for perfect spousal love in the bridegroom that is Jesus. And also, as well as the church being the bride of Jesus and united to Jesus, individual Christians are united to Jesus. If you like, in a marriage as well. In a union. It's one of Paul's, the Apostle Paul, one of his favorite ways of describing a Christian is not a Christian does all of these moral things. One of his favorite ways is a Christian is somebody who is in Christ. 
in Christ is a language he often uses. United to Christ, one with Christ. I love what Paul says in, in Colossians 1.27. He says, it's a glorious mystery, the hope of, sorry, it's a glorious mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's like, this, I, I can't get my head around it, but something of what Christ has done, that you've been united to his life, his death, his resurrection, means that you are in him, united to him. What's his is yours. You've, you've forged, he's forged this amazing union. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I and mean, look how Paul puts it in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 6. Same kind of language. Verse 15. Don't you know, he implores his precious church, that your bodies are members of Christ? Is that how you see your physical body if you're a Christian? Verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's ultimately why Paul is so horrified as to what's going on. He's like, your body is is precious, it's so precious. Jesus lived in a real body got tempted in a real body, died in a real body, rose to a real body, ascended in a real body, and one day will return in a real body, and he is so cleaned and washed and sanctified your body that it's a fitting temple for his very spirit to dwell. You are one. He is joined to you. He dwells within you. And he's like, so how, why could you ever live like this when that's not who you are? You see the heart of what he's trying to get at. It's not a finger wagging. He's like, he's kind of almost scratching his head in a really sort of loving father. He's like, this is so far removed from who you are. So the Bible talks about sex particularly as this means of affirming and describing unity. Unity in the context of marriage and ultimately unity between God and his people. And finally, The Bible also says that sex also carries a promise. Its power is in its promise to heal and to hope. So yes, sex carries a capacity for procreation, a capacity for pleasure, ultimately a a power for unity. It also carries a promise, carries a promise to heal and to hope. Look what, uh, I don't think I put it on the screen, but look what, or let me read you what Paul said as he listed that list of all kinds of ways from sexual immorality through to theft and greed that we can push back on the good commands of God and say, I'm God and not yours. As he lists those ways, he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, he said, but, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul doesn't then say, hmm, and that has now changed. Do you notice that? It's really important. This is who you are. This is what's happened to you, but you're living as though you were someone else. Come back to who you are. Live as who you are. Remember, you are washed if you're a Christian. You are sanctified. You are made holy. You are whole. You are without blemish. So the promise of sex is that it carries hope of restoration. It carries a hope of change. It carries a hope of of transformation. Paul says in Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So where a marriage has gone stale sexually 
and there's maybe been past hurt and confusion. The Spirit promises today to help you in your weakness, to minister to you, to, to give you the courage to have the conversations, maybe to draw others, pastors, leaders, counselors, into those conversations. The Spirit helps you in your weakness. Where you're like, this is all very well and good, but I'm single, and, and, and looking at porn and doing the obvious things as a result is the only thing that gives me any outlet to my sexual desires. The, the promise is the Spirit helps you in your weakness. So when those moments come, like, I'm going to look at that, you have a choice. You can say, Holy Spirit, help me. I don't want Jesus right now. I just want this. Holy Spirit, help me to want Jesus. Lead me into truth. Please remind me of what sex is for. Please remind me that this woman I'm about to let's just call it out, masturbate in front of. She's made in the image of God. She is precious with unique equality and dignity and value, and she's not to be used for my selfish ends. Holy Spirit, help me. You can do that. And he comes alongside. If you're in a context now where you're you're using sex in any way that is contrary to a committed union of husband and wife, the, the Holy Spirit wants to help this morning and to bind us together as a family where we can talk about these things and where we can spur each other on and exhort each other. I was reading a book by a guy called David Bennett these last few weeks who is a same-sex attracted Christian who's chosen to live celibate. And just reading what he has to say as he's wrestled with that and wept through that and hearing him, or reading what he's had to say around eventually, over time, he has found that actually the yearning that he has for satisfaction and connection and intimacy and acceptance and ecstasy is ultimately to be found in the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. Like it's profound when you read that kind of thing. And we'll talk around the specifics of homosexuality next, next term. And that's the other promise that sex carries is that it's pointing to something greater, whether you are married or whether you're single. It's designed, ultimately, to point to unity and to point to an eternal unity. Think about it. One day, Christ will return. The Bible tells us there'll be no need for marriage. And therefore, by definition, there'll be no sex within marriage. Which, when you say that, it's like, really? (laughs) I thought 10 years without sex was hard. Eternity? But think about the profundity of that promise. That means that when Christ comes to make all things new and to gather to himself his beautiful bride that he loves and cherishes so much, every single person who's simply trusted in him, when he comes to do that, such will be the newness with which he, with which he brings into the creation. Such will be the return to Eden of joy and creativity and beauty and celebration and fun. All of it will be so amazing. Relationships and friendships will be so deep, so profound, so sincere, so life-bringing, there will be no requirements for marriage and sex. So ultimately, whether you're in marriage and you're wanting it to be better, or just at all, or whether you're single, or same-sex attracted and single, and you're wondering, am I ever going to be able to express these urges that I have? Please hear me when I, I think what the ultimate picture is of the Bible is that God would say, those desires that you have are good desires. And one day, whether you are married or not, those desires will be met in the perfect union of Christ and his bride. 
And that's a hard thing to believe because it feels like a long way away and it's not tomorrow when I want to look at some porn or start a conversation that I know could probably go somewhere with the person at work. Or when tomorrow the idea of us as a couple talking about our sex challenges it feels so impossible. You're like, I, I know that's hard. <laughs> And I know eternity and Christ coming again may seem just like a distant, ethereal, but it's, it's, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Christ will return one day. And he will bring to fruition these desires that we all have. And it will be beautiful. And it will be glorious. And it is for anybody who would trust in Christ. God, who humbled himself to be born into a body a body that he must have known temptation about. We were told that he was tempted in every way. A physical body. God was born into one. And that body was broken and frankly mutilated and hung on a cross. And by trusting in that sacrificial death, we become united to that death and our old life can be crucified as well and left at the cross but he didn't stay dead. It's not a corpse in a tomb. He came back to life again. He strode out of the tomb into a body and a believer is united to that resurrection body as well and therefore life comes and wholeness comes and joy comes and then one day he promises to return and give us a resurrection body as well and we'll only use it for all the purposes that God gave us to use it for. I recognize church family that I've probably touched on all kinds of things this morning. Well, I have because I meant to. <laughs> And I may have been clumsy on occasion. I just want you to know that, that God feel, God's really is for you in this. And so what I would love us to do now as Ellen and the band come is, as I was praying this morning, I felt I would just love us to worship. Like I'd, Becca will lead us as she always does so brilliantly in how else we can respond. But I would just love us to come in worship and begin to do now what we will do for eternity, which is not just singing, but it is worshiping and enjoying Jesus. It is the bride of Christ, which at the moment is bumpy and lumpy and messy, and one day will be fully perfect and beautified. So I would love us to worship. If you feel like God's bringing things on your heart, prophetic and so forth, please come and bring them through Becca, and God might have some other things to say to us as we respond to him this morning. Can we stand, please? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your timeless and beautiful word. We thank you that given that you are eternal and transcendent, you will think differently to us. And we trust you that that is a good thing. And we ask you, I ask you for every believer here this morning that you would draw us into a sanctified, beautiful, courageous expression of the gift of sex within marriage. I pray for courage to come in these moments, Holy Spirit, boldness to live this stuff out. Pray for faith to rise, to put sin to death, Jesus, as you have already done on our behalf. I pray for your beautiful presence and the wonder of your love for us and your intimacy and desire for us to just overcome us so much that we would know I'm loved, I'm accepted, I can do this thing in the love of Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, have your way with us in these moments. Would we know how to respond to you? Would we have the courage and faith to respond to you? 
And would you bless us mightily and wonderfully as we respond to you. Amen.